A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Let me ask Gloria Dickey of Reuters to be next. If... 1.5 is indeed dead. So much of the rhetoric, of course, is keeping 1.5 alive. Is our world leaders living in an, in an imaginary world at this point? How long do you expect it will take policy and discussion to catch up? Thank you. 1.5 is deader than a doornail. I'm Richard Delavan. I'm your host here at Wicked Problems. That was James Hansen, legendary NASA climate scientist who 35 years ago warned the world about global warming. This week, he tried to shake things up again with a paper that was part science and part sermon. Depending on how you hear it, it might be that part of the movie when the maverick scientist bursts into the Oval Office to tell the president, it's so much worse than you think. Is this going to hit us? We're efforting that as we speak, sir. What kind of damage are we? Damage? Total, sir. It's what we call a global killer. The end of mankind. Doesn't matter where it hits. Nothing would survive, not even bacteria. My God. What do we do? Or, if you hear it a different way, is a voice that just... Well, to be honest, maybe it's just the voice of someone who needs to go lie down for a bit. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Well, if I can stop dating myself with film references that come from before many of you were born, let's hear some more of what Hansen actually had to say, and you can decide for yourself. And anybody who understands the physics knows that. The assumptions that are made are just inconsistent with the real world and what is happening. We're also going to pass two degrees unless we take actions to affect the planet's energy balance. I, I mentioned that if you want to do it by extracting CO2, it costs you more than $100 trillion. It's not going to happen. Hansen's paper followed the updated research from Imperial College London in Nature Climate Change this week, which said we've got nearly 20 years less than we thought to get to net zero. Juxtaposed with all the rhetoric this week about tripling renewables by 2030 being the key to keeping 1.5 alive, from COP28, from IRENA, the IEA, tons of corporate sustainability reports, 
even the big oil companies claim to be committed to the Paris goal of 1.5C, it seems kind of bad. And I don't mind telling you, I've been a little freaked out. So all week I've been asking the smartest people I could get a hold of at the Business Green Net Zero Festival, at an event at Chatham House, on Blue Sky, you'll be there soon, and ringing up experts who might help make sense of it. So we're doing something different, taking a lot of these thoughts and a lot of these conversations and compiling them into three episodes. The first one is a conversation that I had on November 3rd with Katan Joshi. The second episode is a great conversation that's going to drop on Monday with the doyen of climate communications, Susan Joy Hassel, who's collaborated with people like Michael E. Mann, as well as many others you would have heard of. The red thread connecting all these conversations is this. What stories should we be telling about this moment, about the future, and whether we really can do anything about it, or if it's too late? Those stories will help shape how people feel, what you buy, whether to have more children, which companies get investment, which ones you might want to work for, whether government policy makes things better or worse, to make us more likely to think that we're all in this together, or that it's everyone out for themselves, and act accordingly. If you like the session, do check us out at news.wickedproblems.uk. You'll find our newsletter there. You can also find other episodes with myself and co-host Claire Brady. We're also on your favorite podcast app. Tell us what you think and share your ideas for future guests at news. Wickedproblems.uk. Find Richard Delavan or Claire Brady on LinkedIn or now Blue Sky. And you'll find links in the show notes as always. Let's kick things off. Ketan Joshi is the energy data, what Gordon Ramsay is to food. He knows what goes together. He rarely pulls his punches and he's got a, a lot of heart. His 2020 book about the very intense Australian climate politics of the first part of the century that he was in the middle of, Windfall, reads like a wartime memoir. A little part of me dies when I see someone under 40 write this well, but I'll, I'll try to get over that. He is a senior associate working with a nonprofit doing public advocacy and research on corporate climate commitments. And in his spare time, is a prolific contributor and community builder on Blue Sky, where I've been spending a lot of time lately. Ken Andreschi, welcome to Wicked Problems. Hello. Very nice to be here. Thank you for that very nice intro. It's been such an incredibly busy week uh, for climate and climate tech communications. We've had... You know, months leading up to COP28, now happening in a couple of weeks, to rally people around this tripling of renewables target by 2030, and that being a central part of how we stay under 1.5 degrees C. You've been such a prolific writer and communicator about this. We really thought the, the audience could benefit from getting your take on it. And this week, that campaign for 3X renewables really, really went into high gear, right? So we had IRENA and the Global Renewables Alliance kicking off their white paper with this nice little infographic saying we get to 11,000 gigawatts made up of 3,500 gigawatts of wind and 5,500 of solar PV. And that campaign was part, seemed to be anyway, part of this, let's get a good news headline out of COP28, like when we can bank. And we saw the the COP28 presidency start this at the beginning of the year. The G20 signed on by India. The IEA made it their number one ask for COP. And so if there's like this holy trinity of climate messaging that corporates have internalized. It's this net zero by 2050 in support of staying under 1.5 degrees C. And the institutions were kind of coalescing around that, plus adding this 3X renewables target by 2030 and a lot of multinationals to stay under 1.5. And then this week, we had these controversial new papers drop in Nature and from James Hansen saying, we're actually in deep trouble because the models that say that there's still a path to stay under 1.5 or, in their view, wrong. And even though The Economist ran a cover story a year ago today saying 1.5 was toast, the institutions have been doubling down again and again around 1.5 over the last year. Now, like 
prominent commentators like Michael Mann or Zeke Hausfather have pushed back on this Hansen paper very, very hard. But before we dig into the 3X renewables thing, I wanted to get your take as a communicator, really learned observer, on how things have played out this week. What do you think? <laughs> I, uh, about two years ago, almost, uh, I started to dig much more into the uh, sort of uh, general climate science and emission side of things, right? For about uh, a year, a year before that, I'd been doing a lot of analyzing corporate climate plans, uh, particularly fossil fuel companies. Uh, 1.5C as a target would come up a lot. A bunch of scenarios would come up a lot. And then I was like, oh, crap, okay, now I've got to actually learn uh, what the climate science actually says and read IPCC reports and things like that. At the same time that I started digging into those things, I started seeing more and more instances, scientists themselves or scientific institutions, basically saying it's time to start considering giving up on limiting warming to 1.5 degrees as a, as a goal. And it bothered me, I think, somewhat reasonable, like half good reasons and half bad reasons. The actual sort of numbers behind it is simply that we can't pull down on uh, the rate of global change in emissions fast enough. It's just infeasible from a sort of societal or technological perspective, whichever way you sort of mix it around. You couldn't really bring emissions that, down that fast without uh, some sort of global catastrophe. Uh, and I it bothered me quite a fair bit because it, it, it's, I related it to some very specific uh, debates that I was involved in. So there's a power utility in Australia, for instance, I was writing about at the time. Right. They splashed 1.5C all over there sustainability reports as sort of inspirational optimistic language mm. but then they also have a fleet of like four coal-fired power stations that are the worst ones in australia right. it's just like these massive concentrated blocks of emissions very easily replaceable we knew exactly what to do to to replace all that power capacity and generation with clean sources uh they just decided not to right like they were just like well right. we own these four coal-fired power stations um, and I was like, okay, I was seeing this corporation being problematically optimistic about 1.5C while having a very substantial chunk of the world's emissions uh, in their hands in one decision, one company um, and one executive. Um, and at the same time, I started seeing more and more of these scientists basically saying 1.5C is not possible. And I was like, mm. to me at the time, it felt like they were playing into the hands of companies. And I predicted then that more and more companies would start mimicking the language of 1.5C not being possible mm-hmm. in justifying fossil fuel extensions or expansions. Right. Now, Fast forward to two years to now, <laughs> I have learned a lot more about the climate science and specifically I have learned about the, the I guess, probabilities inherent in a lot of these predictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that specifically was something that really changed my mind a fair bit, which is that th- there was, um, even when we talk about 1.5C being possible or impossible, that itself was couched in these percentage chances Right. Uh, that um, I realized were actually not great. Like it was a 50-50, you know? Yes, exactly. Oh, that's, yeah. uh, okay. So even if we did like this extremely unlikely and difficult thing, even then you would still, it would be like a coin toss as to whether, whether we're actually limited that way. Uh, so since then I've basically, um, I, I've basically changed my thinking on this. I, I, I still very much hate uh, intensely the language of uh, in, uh, of sort of um, 
destiny, uh, particularly around like fossil fuels, you know, like the idea that we're sort of destined to, to use them in a particular way for a particular amount of time. Right. That's not true. Right. Like that's a, that's a fabrication that's used uh, to tactically delay um, action to stop using fossil fuels. However, it is absolutely true that the 1.5 degrees goal is essentially out of reach at the very least in terms of passing it. So I, I think that the question for me as a communicator is, right, why when the science, you know, again, The Economist, it's a year ago today, cover story, 1.5, toast, started mm-hmm. a whole debate in the climate science community and also in communications about, okay, so what does it mean if we keep saying this? Um, what are the implications? I sit there wondering, scratching my head going, okay, well, if if it is increasingly in doubt, and humans are always terrible about trying to understand probabilistic communications anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, usually we resort to using more metaphors like dice, and that's fine as far as it goes. But most people are only hearing 1.5, anything above bad. You know, you can say all to your blue in the face, every 0.1 degree counts. Yeah, okay, sure. We get that if you're really, really read in. But is there not going to be a cost if we have all this momentum mm-hmm. building up something around 1.5, and I went back and actually looked at like Google Trends to see, am I making this up? Am mm. I actually seeing this more and more frequently? And sure enough, at least for the search data, we are. Over the last you know four or five years, we've seen a traumatic increase in the incidence of people looking for information on 1.5C. Yeah. Um, so if it's true that this has actually become a fixture in communications, so what do we make of the resistance to either change communications on that, or are we simply going to continue to drift in the same way we did during COVID about having a lot of public science messages that increasingly just don't seem to conform to observe reality or the things that other scientists are telling us? Yeah, COVID is a good a good comparator, right? Because uh, it was a very different approach. That, that was an actual demonstration of, if you can call it like this, every degree counts, because the idea behind it is that the greater the urgency with which you act, the more lives you save. And it's right. just a, it's a, it's not about the target. It's about the relationship between your actions and how many lives you save. Yeah. Uh, and that was the situation from the outset, right? Like it was a, there was never any, oh, you know, we've got like a, we've got like a death budget for COVID and we need to stay under this death budget. Um, you know, so we should reach, yeah. uh, we should have lockdowns within two years or something like that. That would just I, be absurd. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are in the UK going through this COVID inquiry at the moment. We're hearing a lot about some of the behind the scenes mm-hmm. relationship between the, you know, people talking about targets, people talking about lockdown and people, what, yeah. what actually they were talking about behind the scenes. Um, and I suppose that this relationship between a target as a kind of tactic for mobilization to be able to drive action mm-hmm. towards the desirable policy outcome or to avoid harm um, is great. But I suppose like hear, hearing the, like I was involved in communications for an institution around COVID and looking at how the messaging had to change. Initially, masks, no, 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 masks, but there's no evidence that masks is going to help slow down transmission. And like anybody with a grade school science kind of background is going, well, that's not, that can't be true. Mm. And as it turns turns out, we dialed down that messaging because we wanted to preserve PPE supplies for frontline workers and people in critical medical roles. Yeah, And that had consequences. The consequences were that we'd lost a lot of public trust in public health messaging that really have, we're still living with the consequences of. So I guess that's what my worry is about 1.5C yeah. and having built it up. Are you, is that concern you at all? This is a really important point, 
which is uh, the sort of relationship between honesty and I guess the sort of paternalism in in trying to, to sort of manage or preempt somebody's emotion, somebody's emotional reaction, or trying to um, manage their behavior in a way uh, that I find quite distasteful. I, so so uh, very much, I believe that the truth should be the primary driver, and then you work communications around that. Uh, I don't think that obscuring or hiding or, or changing something um, to, to manage um, public perception is a sort of good thing. Um, and you can find examples of this. So for instance, you can find people saying, don't talk too much about don't talk too much about catastrophic consequences of climate change because people may turn off. Right. Uh, and on the other hand, you get you find people saying, "Don't be too uh, celebratory when something good happens," because people yeah. might go, "Oh, the job's done. Let's just end all climate action now because something good happened." Right. Uh, and I find both approaches preempt reactions in a way that I don't like. So what I found is to be a lot better is if a scientific paper comes out, like. Uh, obviously, there's debate about the Hansen paper. There's debate about the sort of the science behind it and the mathematics behind it. Uh, I very much, that is not my area of expertise, but I really enjoy hearing from people whose expertise it is. Um, so mm. you mentioned like the responses from from um, Zeke and Michael Mann. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have no idea where I stand because I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Same. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah. I don't, yeah, I'm not going to pretend any special knowledge. I'm just trying to decode yeah. um, with my communications head on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Me too. Right. And so my, my, just my, my immediate reaction is just simply, this doesn't seem to change a lot about uh, what we do in day to day in terms of the urgency and particularly doesn't really sort of change a lot around, around COP. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think that, um, I guess we'll get to it in a second, but uh, yeah. the thing with COP, uh, when you put it in the context of, of the state of, of the science, right? So yeah. um, I, it's worth bringing up one other thing in relation to that that I find to be really interesting. So this year, uh, global temperatures have broken a bunch of records by um, by, by like the margin with which they broke the records is, is, is yeah. itself record-breaking. Uh, and you look at charts of this and, and like my immediate reaction is like, oh, I've, I've mucked up the pivot table or the data or something yeah. here. Like I've got to check it. Yeah. You see a 0.5 degree C, you know, variance, you know, against the previous record in September. And you, that's why you hear someone come out with a statement like gobsack smackingly bananas. Yeah. And you don't often hear that language. Yeah. So you see something. Yeah. The, uh, Zeke Hausfeld said that and he um, uh, did a post on Blue Sky recently Um Please join it if you're not on it, audience. Can I just plus one on that? Double yeah. click on that because I just thought I, I'm enjoying this so much over the last week. I saw that Chris Stark was on there from the Climate Change Committee, and I saw that there's a bunch of other people that you know I'm following, and it just seems like there's momentum. Yeah, and you've done a huge thing. So, and thank you for that of helping curate this green sky kind of <laughs> heat, you know, for the community. So, just kudos to you for doing that, and thanks. Please join your green sky as well. Uh, I love I love having more people on it. Um, it's very good, yeah. <laughs> um, and so Zeke Zeke posted there basically with a sense of like you could sort of sense this frustration in his post, which is basically saying yes, global temperatures this year are quite unprecedented, uh, but it is not outside of the realms of the range of what we forecast. It's kind of just at the top of it, the top at the top of the range. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, you and I have a sort of similar instinct when we see something like this, which is basically you, you start thinking about what would average person kind of feel when they when they saw this? Like, I, I try and put myself in the shoes of somebody who may not be super soaked into all of this kind of information. Yep. And I imagine they probably don't care whether it's outside, a little bit outside what was forecast or not outside what was forecast. 
they care about the the threat that it has to their safety and to their you know their yeah. street and their house and their family like it's uh it's um it doesn't really matter whether or not it's unprecedented and so i sort of see this debate with hansen in a similar fashion um mm-hmm. not not that it doesn't matter but that it will be received in a sort of very clear way regardless of uh, you know, is it like is, is it accelerating? Is it like accelerating a bit? Like I, it, like I, don't I, think, I think it, people care that much. <laughs> I think it, it, it's almost like arguing. You know, academics arguing about the parking spaces at the university. It's like the, the more intense these debates <laughs> become is because they're they're so close to each other actually compared to the rest of the spectrum of opinion that the the, 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 the small differences are the ones that actually get the most animated. But anyway, yeah. Um, I want I want to d- dive a little bit into um the. Some of the recent things were, you know, again, talking about this 3X renewables target, because, again, it's kind of a little bit more in, in a space where you've spent a lot of time thinking and mm. researching. Um, so the IEA, which has obviously gone through a, a, almost a renaissance, um, when I was talking to Michael Barnard recently, you know, he was talking about how, you know, Fatih Barol is slowly, slowly nudging the ship away from this being, you know, this oil consumer club um, to one <laughs> that actually is getting a little better about forecasting for, you know, solar and, you know, wind expansion, et cetera. So yeah. obviously IE has had a huge amount of reports over the last, you know, few weeks. They've done an amazing data dump, uh, a lot to chew on. And you've been really digging into the data. I think one of the arguments that Fatih Perel seems to have picked in particular is on fossil peaking. And yeah. OPEC had a very strong reaction, <laughs> not surprisingly, <laughs> to that. Um, what, what's, first of all, your take on you know, where the IE has gotten to? With, and let's talk about fossil peaking for a second before getting yeah. into, I know you've got some views on solar. Yeah, so, um, you know, the IEA has actually been um, packing uh, a sort of soon coming peak for fossil fuels into their scenarios for a few years now. I think um, I need to I need to dig into some of the uh, older ones, but um, I think it's from 2019 onwards, uh, yeah. a straight line upwards into the future was just absurd to them. Like they, they sort of, they were like, that's it, that's done. Uh, yeah. And, you know, pretty reasonable, pretty reasonable move. Uh what was so um, earth shattering, I guess, with this one is that this is, uh, they've put that into their, if imagine the absurd scenario, if no one ever made any new climate policies ever, fossil fuels would still uh, reach a maximum in the next few years and then, and then start to fall after that, right. uh, which is, which is a, uh, which is such a dramatic and emotional story to me because it, it sort of, uh, it packs this, uh, inevitability, you can't turn the ship around, even if you were to try. I mean, you probably right. could if you if you really wanted to, uh, if you had like <laughs> infinite money and there was enough sort of catastrophe and war and things like that, but it's just extremely improbable, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it would be an amount of effort that you just can't do. Um, and so that's great. You know, I, I really, that actually does mean something to me. Uh, I find that to be, that shifting forecast to be a, a great thing. And it sort of... Uh, as always with the IEA, uh, there's a bit of there's a bit of self fulfilling influence behind it. Right, uh, it changes how investment decisions are made. It changes the flow of money. Yes. It remains extremely influential, uh, and so they're thinking about the most probable future changes mm-hmm. what the most probable future is. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it, just, it, it feeds into the momentum. When you use language like unstoppable, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, even people who are just at the periphery making any kind of investment decisions go, okay, well, I guess we're, you know, so if you're, you know, if you're one of the last holdouts in the industrial combustion engine space, you maybe might, might be thinking, you know what, actually now it's time to throw in the towel. Maybe yeah. we won't design any new ICE vehicles. Maybe we just need to do EVs from now on. Exactly. Stop. 
Um, so that, that does matter. I agree. The word unstoppable is really important uh, because it, it's sort of, you have to, you have to treat it in two ways, right? Um, the first thing that you should do is feel a little bit good about it um, because it's not something that just happened by itself. This is decades and decades of hard work from, you know, many different people uh, and uh, many of whom, you know, just like don't even get recognized for it. It's just, it's just a huge amount of human effort that has gone into creating the situation. Yeah. So fantastic. But it is, it is slow downable. Uh, it may not be reversible, right. reversible, but it is very slow downable. <laughs> and let's let's talk about that for a minute because mm. I think that with with solar in particular, I, I mean, again, you're you're a big fan of S curves. Um, you're you're even more data than me. So, I mean, and solar, obviously, we've it's now become the story. And paired with that has been, and you're an old wind guy. You're not old, but you you've had a lot of wind background. The wind sector is going through some things yeah. at the moment, and we're seeing so. I can imagine there being a lot of transference of like, okay, well, if we can't, if wind stalls in terms of, you know, right now that projection of like, or the target of getting to 3,500 gigawatts of wind capacity globally, if we somehow plateau and onshore and offshore wind basically don't get the growth rates that we thought, and now we're seeing solar hockey stick, oh, that must be great because that means we can make up the difference with solar. Tell me what you think, what what the data is telling you. (laughs) Uh, I mean, solar will solar will experience this moment uh, at some point in the future as well. It just has to. There's no uh, infinite sort of uh, exponential curve, uh, and I think that the characteristics, particularly for utility scale solar, um, make it vulnerable to the similar similar dynamics for wind. Um, so you know, um, there's the development structures. You know, these are companies that need to make profits, and you know, it's. Uh, uh, it, it's a it's a complicated process to ensure that investors are sort of have the confidence in these sort of longer term projects. Uh, the um, the community responses. I think this is a big chunk of my book. Um, it's the community responses to wind. At the very end of it, I talk about the potential for this happening with solar as well, uh, and it basically happens for utility scale solar um, uh, pretty pretty frequently, right? Uh, but it's a little bit easier for solar developers because the sun falls relatively evenly across Earth's surface, <laughs> whereas wind is a very precious resource. Uh, so, yeah, basically, uh, I think that, that you have to acknowledge that there are some inherent characteristics between the two technologies mm-hmm. that make wind a bit more vulnerable to like supply chain pressures and yeah. like shaky investors, you know, nervous investors, um, and also to uh, community like failed community um, processes, right? Uh, so yeah. that is, that's playing out in the data, right? Which is that wind, um, is gro- globally, it's growing of course, but the rate of growth is starting to see a, a worrying sort of <laughs> change. Right. Uh, and it, when you zoom da- down into specific countries, it, it looks really bad. Like, um, some of the countries right. with, that have had the most wind growth, um, are seeing the most stalling. Um, right. and I should just quickly mention, I live in Norway, which has had the single most dramatic uh, sort of that phenomenon that I just described anywhere in the world. Uh, growth right. in wind power was the highest in Europe um, in absolute terms. So not even accounting for the fact that we're a small country in absolute terms, Norway had the most uh, extra megawatts of capacity um, for one year, 2019, the year I arrived mm. here in Norway. Uh, and right. and last year it was, uh, I can't remember the number, but it was it's, it's absurdly small. I think it's like 50 or 60 megawatts of proposed new wind. Um, and right. it's like a, some industrial park in somewhere in the north. Um, and so it's a disaster, right? Like this is um, really bad. We've got a lot of new power demand from electrification of our vehicle fleet, electrification of industry yep. and homes. It's, it's all happening pretty fast. 
data centers. There's a new TikTok data center in Hamad. Um, and right. like, it's just sucking up all this power and, and this sure. huge dramas going on. Um, Equinor, the state owned, uh, oil and gas company wants to electrify their, their um, gas processing facilities and oil platforms. Indeed. Um, yes. and so there are communities like objecting to the wind farms that they've proposed for, um, those facilities. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's really wild, you know? Um, so yeah, basically, um, uh, this is a this is a this is a problem that yeah. is manifesting more in wind now, as you would expect, due to the characteristics. But solar is in no way immune to to most of mm. these things. It just has more momentum right. behind it at the moment. Uh, yeah. So, so in terms of the the three X target that you know that people have been talking about, I mean, is that something you'd, you'd co-sign on? Do you think it's a good thing to be shooting for? You know, is it or is it just kind of does it take our attention away from other things that we might be talking about going into COP? Very briefly, yeah. So, so uh, something I've been a little bit fascinated in has been instances where renewables have been growing fast, but emissions are not dropping. Um, so I, I, I mentioned uh, in a LinkedIn post recently, Texas. Uh, yes. I, I actually don't remember if I posted this or not. If I didn't, I will post it. <laughs> but uh, basically, <laughs> Texas is an amazing example. Uh, obviously, you know, the largest state in America with the highest mm-hmm. power demand and the highest growth in power demand. When, uh, and yeah. the reason that is important is because uh, new renewables in Texas, particularly wind, have been filling in growth in demand and not cutting down on emissions. Uh, so... Right. Uh, this whole concept of um, so this is basically what you see in the sort of lead up to emissions eventually being cut down into right. So this happened in Australia. Uh, we had a lot of new renewable growth, and it was kind of just meeting new demand, and then demand stopped growing, and then all of a right. sudden, a bunch of utilities were like, "Oh no, uh, our uh, coal and gas plants are not generating as much as they used to, and we don't like this at all." Um, and they decided mm-hmm. that they wanted to attack the renewable energy targets. Um, and so, you know, basically what you need to have is three things happening simultaneously. First, renewables need to be growing as kind of as fast as you can muster, as long as you, you know, you have like good environmental and social, um, sort of limits in place to make sure that you're not stabbing yourself in the foot as we did here in Norway. Um, and then the second thing that needs to happen is demand needs to be, um, either growth needs to be limited, um, or it needs to be dropping. Um, that can be like energy efficiency or it can be like sufficiency which is covered in the recent IPCC report and then the third thing that needs to be happening that needs to be happening is um, limitations on fossil fuel I'm, I'm talking about power grids here but you can generalize this to yeah. like across the sector across all sectors sure. um, you need to have limitations mm-hmm. on fossil fuel consumption right so uh, like um, in the US for instance you had this whole time period where it was like oh gas is a transition fuel you know it's a bridge fuel to kind of like get from one spot to the other spot <laughs> But because there were no limitations yep. on its usage, it became it, it was right. not a, it was not a bridge fuel. It it just basically replaced coal in its entirety, um, and uh, you know, like emissions from producing that power fell a bit, but not as fast yep. as it should have. Um, so uh, yeah, th- what's what we're going to see at COP for sure is the renewables goal gets kind of talked about in a sort of a, a, a sense of isolation. Uh, and then, um, uh, you know, the implications of a tripling of renewables, which yeah. is a, a subsequent massive reduction in, in consumption of coal, oil, and gas, uh, will yeah. not be talked about too much. <laughs> 
Yeah. More <laughs> that's the goal. Okay. Well, look. Yeah. I get yeah. you. So I think, look, I'm conscious that we're coming up towards time, and I know you have to go to another thing. So I really appreciate I want to give you a couple of quick fire questions mm. before we let you go. Yeah, that's go all right. So first is, I think, one of the things about the, the uncertainty about, uh, you, know, you mentioned about investment decisions being affected by these debates, both the IEA, you know, the communications coming out from institutions like that, but also this, you know, kind of uh, debates around the science. So I was listening to a different podcast where I heard Carolyn Funk from Blue Bear Capital based in San Francisco talking about she's holding back on further thinking about climate tech investments, particularly when it comes to adaptation, particularly when it comes to other things, because she's waiting, to, you know, it's, she thinks it's going to be a couple of years before we see more data about where temperatures will land. And that's going to be both a mix of the policy stuff, you know, how the science and the atmosphere chemistry work out, and also what we see coming out of COP. But in terms of where she's waiting, you know, she's holding back, placing her next set of bets until she's gotten more data about where those bets can be placed in a more intelligent way based on where she thinks we're going to end up in terms of temperatures, um, which is an interesting signal. And, you know, Blueberry is one of the OG investors in the space. So hearing someone like that talk in that terms is, is slightly concerning to me. Is that something that you think about at all in terms of like how that's going to invest, affect capital allocations? Yeah, that's so interesting. I So... <laughs> I think that, uh, that there's a there's a secondary conversation which I find to be quite daunting, but I follow I follow closely the people who actually know about it and talk about it uh, around climate risk. Uh, so this is basically two two different categories. One is uh, you know the impacts of climate change on your investments mm-hmm. and things like that, and then also the impacts of the change of the the speed of the transition on your investments. Uh, a good example is all of the um, massive investments in new uh, gas projects. Um, so not just right. in the US, but in Australia as well. I've been tracking a few. And then we've obviously got a lot of um, planned oil and gas expansion here in Norway. Uh, and people sort of criticize it on the grounds of like, well, um, you know, you shouldn't really be putting the money into those into those things because uh, you will not right. recover the cost of capital. Um, people will just demand fossil fuels far less than than you think they will, right. uh, and you know uh, it's 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 sort of predicated on this assumption of like again inevitability. Like this is this is my projection. This is the future that I think is definitely going to happen. Um, and I think less and less in those terms. Uh, I think more and more in in uh, it depends on it depends very much on what we do, how we act. Uh, the actual change in temperatures and climate impacts and stuff like that feels a bit more alien to me because it's not really, you know, a lot of uh, a big chunk of what we experience over the next sort of five to 10 years will be the consequences of our past actions, not the consequences of things that we decide today and tomorrow. Uh, So, yeah. I think, I think yeah, if your investment time horizon is a little bit further out, you're deciding like which early stage startups pre-commercialized to back, you know, which kind of really blue sky technologies you're trying to decide, like I'll put some, you know, put some, you know, she's a very focused investor. She doesn't do spray yeah. and pray. So I think she's a, you know, kind of well-read in deciding like this is just a yeah, interesting signal for me that that was a, something on her mind as a material risk affecting her investment decision-making. Second thing, are you more optimistic or pessimistic than you were when you wrote Windfall? <laughs> Oh man, I think I'm, I actually think I'm more optimistic, which is strange because in, in many senses, uh, you could argue that the, um, just the raw numbers are, are worse in, in, in many regards. Um, the, the forecasts are better, but the, but the measurements of what's happening now are not, are not better. 
Um, so I try to focus entirely on, on, you know, measurements and like, what's the current, you know, what, what was generated, like what were emissions in the past year, not, not what are the forecasts for the next five years. Uh, so, which is so strange, but the reason that I, that I've certainly not been too, that isn't sort of knocking me into a state of pessimism, uh, is because the, um, sort of society, the collective movements and the structures around in the climate movement, um, they have themselves have grown up a bit. We've kind of come out of our teenage years. Um, we're starting to get uh, a really good spread across many, many different segments of society. It's not just like focused on a few different things anymore. Um, this idea that we're too obsessed with like renewables and EVs and stuff like that, that's kind of outdated. Um, you can just read and mm-hmm. you read about climate news and you read every day, like there's fights about gas stoves, there's fights about like getting steel companies to decarbonize. There's fights about, you know, um, like large tech companies and how they're doing their sustainability. This is really a broad spread. Um, and it looks mm-hmm. a bit more disjointed or sort of like a bit of a mess across every segment of human society, but this is exactly what we should be doing. Um, it doesn't look like one movement, one single movement anymore. Right. Um, and that's not a problem. That's a really good thing. Um, we're, we're actually sort of yeah. doing everything at once. Um, and I like that. That actually makes me right. quite happy and feel pretty good about this. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. And then finally, like before I ask you for some recommendations, so climate tech, that's, that's our beat. That's what we talk about here. You know, we talk to founders, we talk to investors. Um, and I think there's a lot of nervousness about talking too much about the policy environment from them. It's something you pay a lot of attention to. And I think, like yourself, a lot of people try to stay out of it until they get, wind up getting mugged, you know, by a PR campaign on the other side, which I think, you know, people can read your book to get a little more details on. Um, but, you know, what's your advice to people working in the sector um, about how they should approach, you know, communicating about these kind of public issues in ways that might make yeah, them uncomfortable? Yeah, I, I think uh, I have to bring it back to something I'm working on right, right at the moment, which is uh, carbon removal, uh, carbon removal uh, startups and, and sort of companies. Uh, I, I, I've sort of been doing carbon market stuff for, you know, a couple of years now uh, and very, very, very keenly aware of all of the problems that have ossified in that sector um, over the past two years. And so uh, I was, I had a lot of optimism and a lot of hope for the, um, for these sort of young companies, you know, a year ago, but um, I've seen a lot of sort of hand waving of problems and, and sort of uh, uh, basically saying like, look, you know, because it's urgent, we need some cash. So it's okay for us to do like a partnership with a fossil fuel company or something like that. Um, and I think that the context, mm. which we'll see again, at COP play out in a lot of detail um, is that there are people out there who really want to prolong Again, like I said before, it's slow downable. <laughs> they want to prolong. They want to prolong. Yes. Um, yes. Even if it's a decline, they want that decline to be as shallow as possible. And they're more than happy to use like a sort of, um, you know, like a carbon removal excuse and kind of say, yeah. "Well, yeah, that's cool. You know, I'll just slap a slap those becks on it, and yeah. it will be fine." Um, so yeah. yeah, I would I would basically say um, you basically have no option but to engage with the with the sort of broader context. Um, because you really don't want to be taken for a ride. You don't want to get used by by people with bad intentions. Yeah. That's, I think, a really good piece of advice. Um, and in fact, I mean, like like Neil Stevenson, one of my favorite authors, I mean, like I, you know, for those who don't know, Cryptonomicon or Snow Crash, where um, the metaverse came from in terms of that uh, that book, uh, or Seven Eves or Termination Shock. He's one of the, the best writers around, in my view, you know, particularly thinking about things in this space. And, 
you know, his his view is that he's basically doing all this communications, all this writing, because otherwise, you know, it's it's basically good for his mental health. Um, I find similar things. How do you find, you know, kind of keeping up your communications now that you're kind of have a little more mixed, you're not writing all the time and by, have your bylines appear in The Guardian and other places? Um, how do you keep yourself motivated to keep yeah, yourself going? Actually, um, this is part, partly why I've been um, uh, putting so much like time and effort into uh, trying to cultivate a, a sort of stronger community on, on Blue Sky. Like, I don't think that um, Blue Sky has any guarantee that it's going to be as big a social network as Twitter was back in the day. Uh, but, you know, a big chunk of it is it's really nice and it feels really fun to to cultivate, like, the growth of a, of a new community. Uh, it made me realize, you know, building something from the ground up is a lot more fun than kind of just existing on something that's kind of uh, growing a little bit stagnant. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, yes, you know, yes. the, uh, this is uh, like, uh, as you mentioned, I write a lot less. Um, I, I don't like that very much. I, I want to write a bit more. But since Twitter basically stopped existing, um, I have mm. um, not really been, I, I have actually reduced my social media usage in general. Uh, and I've been reading a lot more and I, I haven't read for a long time. Um, I'm currently reading, um, you know, very uh, boring decision, but Ministry for the Future, um, <laughs> which is, you know, a compulsory book and I still hadn't read it so you're halfway through it um and it is an amazing feeling um and I had no idea I, I had forgotten how good it feels to to just kind of just sit there and read um but that is something that is helping a lot right. as well in addition in addition to kind of just like building new spaces and thinking about new, new ways to do this what we do um reading is yeah wow it's nice to read words amazing <laughs> it's nice because we can still Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say it's it's like I God, who has listened to you? Fred Fukuyama actually giving out about it, saying like it's like listening to you know a lecture on slow speed. Um, I, I I didn't find it that way. I I, I think having read his Mars trilogy stuff, I think that um, maybe I'm just giving him the benefit of the doubt and reading things that aren't necessarily there. But um, good for you for keeping going with it. Um, so finally, on on that point, I mean, are there we ask people who come on the show, are there three things that you'd recommend? Again, everyone's going to have a name for it. We call it catalysts. Um, you know, three things that you would have read or watched or listened to, particularly now we've got more doing more of that, um, that have kind of shaped your views on climate tech or climate more broadly that you might recommend to people. Listening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, um, uh, this is a like this is not explicitly like a climate tech thing, um, but it actually plays in, but it actually okay. relates quite closely to a lot of issues that I think people working on climate tech would would face. Um, so the history of public relations in general, and then specifically the history of public relations in the context of fossil fuels, uh, this is something that is very very important for all new forms of technology uh, or people working on new forms of technology to understand, uh, because you will either need to talk about your technology or you will be on the receiving end of uh, people with competing technologies uh, who want to use these techniques. Um, so there's a really great podcast series called Drilled. Um, it's run by Amy Westervelt, one of the you know best climate journalists in the world. Uh, and season three of it is mm -hmm. called The Mad Men of Climate Change. Um, and it's about basically the sort of um, how closely the history of PR is linked with, with fossil fuels. Um, that actually changed mm -hmm. a lot for me, uh, I think it sort of made me rethink um, my own attitude and approach towards communications, 
um, taking a bit more of like a humble approach, being less, you know, oh, I'm just trying to pull the levers of everyone's feelings and behavior, you know, <laughs> the sort of marketing industry style. I was like, I don't think that's going to be me. <laughs> um, so that was a really good one. Right. Uh, I would I would recommend uh, there's um uh, there's a uh, sort of uh, I guess uh, it's a newsletter um, that I subscribe to, um, and it's called Coal Wire. Um, and it's run by a guy called Bob Burton. He's an Australian. Um, it's really just one of the best newsletters I've, I've subscribed to. It, it is really just like packed with so much information about the coal industry um, and, and very much like the good stuff and the bad stuff, right? Like the good news about like this coal plant right. is, you know, cancelled or whatever, but then, you know, China's recent investments and a whole bunch of new ones or something like that. Um, that, that really gives you such a totally realistic, uh, it's a bit of a slap in the face. Like I, I'm constantly reading about all the successes of renewables. And then I sort of read that and I'm like, oh, okay, Indonesia exists, right? <laughs> or Poland exists. So from a technological perspective, it reminds you of the sort of other half of the equation. Yeah, so Bob Burton, you know. Coal Wire, yeah. very, very good newsletter. My third thing uh, is a really great newsletter um, by a guy called Michael Thomas um, called Distilled. He, he is really focused on the the myths and the disinformation around renewables and electric cars and things like that. Um, and I guess the sort of disinformation campaigns that are going on around this, uh, this is actually really important. Yes. Uh, it's kind of uh, somewhat gone a little bit out of fashion to talk too much about you know, like this kind of thing, but disinformation is still a really massive thing. Like this is, it's not like climate denial anymore, but it's in, in many ways worse. Uh, and so I think it's important to remain really vigilant about it. And Michael Thomas does a really good job of, of tracking it. So I would recommend mm. um, checking out his work. We're a big fan of the newsletter format here at Wicked Problems, which you can, of course, subscribe to ours at news.wickedproblems.uk. Also get this and other podcasts. But Katan Joshi, I know we've kept you over time. I'm very grateful. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you for more of your Blue Sky work? What are the coordinates? <laughs> yeah, katanjoshi.co on, on, on Blue Sky uh, if you're on there. If not, um, you can actually uh, find me on LinkedIn. I've been posting a lot more on LinkedIn. Just longer format stuff and charts and things like that it's been really fun being a little bit being a little bit cheeky there and trying to get a bit of a rise out of the oil and gas guys and stuff like that it's um yeah i'm, I'm enjoying it it's good <laughs> I've, I've observed some of it i mean i think you're not quite in the michael barnard league of hitting people with a hammer but there's definitely echoes there somewhere but listen katan thank you so much really appreciate it um, enjoy it. Hopefully it's a beautiful day in Oslo there. Thanks so much to Katan Joshi for joining us for this conversation. It was, I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. And you will find links to the things we discussed in the show notes, including where to find Tan and indeed myself on Blue Sky and the Green Sky group that he has curated. So I hope we will see you there soon. Be patient. It will be worth the wait. Amy Jaffe has been wondering where Energy Twitter is going to migrate to. I think we have an answer now. It's like Energy Twitter. It's so much better. Over at Green Sky. Do check out our newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk. Let us know your ideas for other guests or topics we should be covered. We'll be back Monday with the second part of this series and featuring my conversation with Susan Joy Hassel. It is not to be missed. If you enjoy the show, do leave a rating or review in your favorite podcast app where you found us. It does help other people to find the show. And looking forward to having Claire Brady back as our co-host next week. Uh, she says a couple things going on, so we're looking forward to that. Have a great rest of your weekend. Hold up. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 